Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. I knew We Are Family was a smash. As a matter of fact, I knew We Are Family was such a smash, I didn't allow the record company to put that song out first. Yes, you're hearing right. That is Nile Rodgers, the music icon, the legend, and he's here today to celebrate another legend, Accutron, on our birthday. He's going to talk about everything, and we've got a lot of questions. Uh, Also today, the Empire State Building is being illuminated in green to celebrate the birthday of Accutron. But up first, I'm Bill McCuddy, along with editor David Graver and Scott Alexander, and we are talking all things music. It's got a beat, and we can dance to it on this episode of the Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. David, share with us how music has influenced your life. I live for music. I start my day with music. I end my day with music. I care so much. I make playlists every single day, every single week. I've got collaborative playlists with all of my friends. I Scott, care. have you gotten a playlist for <laughs> from David? From David? Not yet. Jesus, God. Niall's the type of creator who's so ubiquitous that regardless of where you are in the world, you'll stumble into his music. I remember going to Art Basel um, in Switzerland, walking into an 18th century church and Get Lucky was playing, and I was like, this is Nile Rodgers. Nile Rodgers is in this church with me right now. Nile Rodgers is everywhere. His music you know, is it's everywhere. It's unbelievable. You look at his at his catalog, and it's just like, oh, wait. Okay, Madonna and David Bowie and Daft Punk and, 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 and. I mean, it's just, it's an unbelievable career. We're- so in the old days, albums had an order. They, they had an A side, a B side. They had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I, I just think in the world of shuffle and downloading, that we, we've lost all that. That's definitely true, but I do think there are creators out there, Niall perhaps included, who think of the album as an art form. I love to listen to an album from start to finish, and I think there are many creators still doing it, even though TikTok has sort of undermined that. It's all about the single, the buzz, the 13-second clip. Scott, well, that's the thing. An... well, it started with Spotify, although, Bill, you point out, it started with that darn shuffle button. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but the Spotify took it and atomized the album down into individual tracks and songs, and then the single became a big deal. And then exactly what you're saying, David, like it went down from there into these 13-second clips that now go huge. And when a band hits on TikTok now, um, there's this band that I've been following for years. They were uh, in obscurity for year, 15 years I've been listening to this band. They're called Mother Mother. They're out of Canada. They sell out in Canada. They play tiny clubs here. Really? They hit on TikTok, and suddenly they're playing giant venues full of teenagers. So it's like 
I found these guys in my 30s, right? I followed them in my 30s and my 40s, and then now they're a teeny bopper group. I mean, they're like being because sampled in a way. I mean, because I want to talk to him, and and I'm curious what you guys think about all of the recycled stuff that happens uh, in the world of sampling. I mean, is it legitimately art, or is it kind of stealing somebody else's game? 100% legitimately art, but that makes yeah. me wonder how often Nile Rodgers is credited as songwriter on something that wasn't his like primary right. Vest, like, right. vehicle. Right. Yeah. Well, they. I mean, originally there was kind of no rules about it. Now that you have to actually clear samples, I'm sure he's getting yeah. credited more than uh, than he did on like Rapper's Delight, maybe. Uh, one of the things that's exciting about Nile Rodgers is he's celebrating a birthday just like Accutron. Yeah, seventy. Wow. Boom. Seventy. Oh, he's seventy. Yep. He's seventy wow. or sixty-two. You would not know it. So we're a little younger. Uh, but he is going to tell us about a relationship he has with Bulova involving two watches. Uh, they are a limited edition of 70 pieces. One is for Nile's 70th birthday, and uh, the other one is a lunar pilot watch. He'll talk to us about the relationship he has with both of those watches, but the important thing to know is that Bulova has re-released these two watches, and they are available at Bulova.com, uh, 70 pieces each, and the proceeds go to his We Are Family Foundation, which he will tell us more about. Oh, that's so cool. All of this happening when Nile Rogers joins us after this. Happy birthday. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. Now, Rogers, welcome to the Accutron Show. Uh, we are thrilled to have you because you're a living legend and we're not. And uh, <laughs> we, um, I, I guess, you know, we were having a conversation before you joined us about what has happened in the world of music. And one of the headlines is we just seem to consume it differently. We don't have albums anymore that we listen to with a beginning and a middle and an end. How does that make you feel, and what does it do to you as a producer in terms of re rethinking the talent, if anything? Um, that That's actually a great, great, great question because I grew up in an era where the album, from my point of view, the album was the film and the singles were the trailers. So you had you had to have the hit single in order to make someone interested enough to listen to the album, which was you watch the trailer. If you liked it, then you watch the film. Um, so to me, hit singles, especially lead-off singles, were the beginning of the story, or at least the part that hooked you into the story, and the album was the completed vision. In today's world, I find that um, um, the consumption of music is actually a reflection of society. We're a society now that's basically a headlines-oriented society. I don't see people reading full articles anymore. I don't see people reading anything that's really in-depth. Um, every now and then, somebody uh, tells me that they read my my book, my memoir, 
and I am so thankful. I go, my God, yeah, I'm just impressed that you read a book. And <laughs> the right. fact that you read mine like really blows me away. And I'm just really thankful for your time because it seems like people value their time um, in a way that uh, is very different than before. Uh, in, in the old days when it came to music, it seemed like the listening to music and spending your time listening to music was actually entertaining and rewarding. It was like, it wasn't something that we felt like um, you were giving to us. We felt that if we earned that uh, interest, that's all we needed. If we just earned your interest and then you decided to spend your time having a good time listening to our music or listening to, you know, heady music, that was all still the same to us. But now what's what it feels like is that a person's time is so valuable to them um, that if they spend time listening to your song, that's um, an incredible achievement. So now as a composer, I actually try and tell the whole story in almost like a musical compendium type of form. It's not like the, the full book, it's just the compendium. But you're trying to do more inside a single song? Is that what you're saying? Trying to like have a, yeah. the song be, individual song be a complete work? Yes, the, so the individual song is more of a cinematic journey that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, not to just one song, not to just what would have been the trailer or, uh, or, or something to interest you in the book, if you will. Um, it's now the book, and the book is a short story. Are songs getting longer in that way? Like singles, and the songs were always, uh, you know, medium. The singles were kind of on the shorter end, though, of the tracks on an album. Is that right? Uh, yes, but not in my life. Singles. Uh, I, uh, if you look at my history, the lead single is always the longest song on the album. Oh wow! Oh really? And it, and it's also it's always because of the technology. So what happened is that when I had my first hit the 12-inch single was the new hot thing. So it's funny, I did an interview today with uh, John, John Taylor from Duran Duran, and he talks about how the music I did with them being these really long production pieces, eight minutes, seven minutes. Mm. Uh, my first single was eight minutes long. Um, uh, oh. If you listen to David Bowie's Let's Dance, most people only know the single version. They don't realize that Let's Dance is a very long song. Uh, we Are Family is a very long song. Ah, Freak Out, La Freak is a very long song. I'm Coming Out, Diana Ross is a very long song. Upside Down, they're very long songs. I felt that because of the technology at the time, I wanted to reward the listener with the trailer being so interesting that you had to, you felt compelled to see the rest of the film. As as such a prolific songwriter who's been so hands-on in, in the creation of so many songs, how do you feel about sampling when people take a little clip of your music and make it into something else? 
Oh, I think it's brilliant. Um, I just did a, a, a song for a French um, animated series, which is actually an educational series, very much like what we used to have called, uh, I think it was called Schoolhouse Rock. Indeed. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. yeah. And uh, so now uh, this French television series is actually the schoolhouse rock of music. So it teaches you all about jazz and folk and funk wow. and disco and hip hop and whatever, all sorts of music. And, and I wrote this thing with uh, Snoop Dogg. And what's really brilliant about this is we use We Are Family as the basic music template and Snoop uses it as his inspiration, but then he superimposes all new lyrics over um, the music. And it's not a sample because I have too much fun playing it. So <laughs> it's me reinterpreting my own stuff, but it could have very well have been a sample. It could have very well uh, have been the original recording and it could very well have been just a loop of the groove and it would have still uh, served the same, would have served the same purpose. And it's legit, not lazy. You, you see it as an art form and not a, a crutch. Um, no, I don't think of it as a crutch. I think of it as um, uh, the educational system, in especially in America, um, changing drastically. Remember, I'm 70 years old. When I was a kid... Pardon me, you're ageless. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I learned to um, not only read music, write music, compose, arrange, orchestrate, all of that stuff by the time I was seven years old, eight years old. And the reason why was because we had a standardized curriculum in America. Mm. Um, even though, believe me, I am a tree-hugging, liberal, hippie, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people think that the standardized education uh, system was unfair. But to a person like me, it was a great gift because my parents were heroin addicts and I was constantly on the move. I had the most um, uh, <laughs> inconsistent childhood you could ever imagine. I don't remember ever going to one school um, for longer than a few weeks um, till I was able to control my own destiny, which was around when I was a four, around 14 years old. Wow. But you got music education in the school and that, that's that's what started you off yeah so i'm sorry the part that i left out was the fact that um all schools in america taught music they taught art they had physical education all of that stuff was just standardized yeah so see dick run run jane run that was it that didn't make any difference whether you went to parochial school or public whatever we all learned from the same textbooks so right. what wound up happening was that um, all of the public schools had little orchestras, if you will. When and mm. I mean, you know, they range from completely horrible because we were kids <laughs> to some that were actually talented, simply because the kids had a consistent life 
and they had parents that were, you know, on top of them. That was not my case. So mm -hmm. I went from school to school to school to school. But what wound up being um, an incredible benefit was the fact that every time I went to a new school, they assigned me whatever instrument was missing in their little orchestra or their ensemble. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> So by the time I was seven years old, I knew the the uh, the written range of every single instrument in the symphony orchestra. Oh, so oh my I goodness. Could yeah, I could compose for it. So what happened was, let's fast forward to my professional life, the, di the disco era. Um, I heard the term self-contained band, which is what they, what they called the Beatles. Well, in fact, the Beatles were just four guys who played their instruments. They were not self-contained because George Martin did the orchestration. Right. I, as a kid, didn't know. So when I heard the term, I thought, oh, well, we're, we're I would do all my orchestration for Sheik. <laughs> so I wrote all the string parts, all the horn right. parts, all the harp parts, all the symphonic stuff that went along with our music not knowing that that's not what self-contained <laughs> you were just sitting in that's, right you're just the guy they needed that uh yeah, hey but, listen niall uh comedians don't laugh at other comedians uh screenwriters and directors go to movies and start to analyze what's going to happen on the screen and don't really enjoy themselves do you still like listening to music or do you have to do you hear it technically and go wait they should have done this or they should have done that um, I only do that um, when I'm uh, officially called in to do that. Normally, I just listen to music to enjoy it. Uh, I, uh, I, I, um, I, I have to be honest with you. I love pop records. I love hit records. I love to see where things are going. As a matter of fact, I think you actually misstated reality. The reality is, is records now, singles are shorter than they've ever been. This is, go we're going back to the days of of, of Elvis and those guys, the, the two minute and 47 second record, the three minute record. You know, when I was a kid, the longest song you ever wanted was three minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, um, uh, that, and that's what we're back to. We're record, We're back to records that are, less than three minutes and they're big hit records so um the concept of the 12 inch format which i grew up with eight minute records nine minute 12 minute records look at rapper's delight i mean my god that, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I i got paid three times uh the the statutory rate the you know the three times the uh the the manufacturer suggested price of a single in those days um, because the song was so long. Yeah, it's still uh, playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still great. And um, I don't think I still get paid that rate, but. Um, um, right. So that's interesting that if, if the songs are getting shorter and then people are kind of listening to single after single after single, as opposed to listening to a full album by the same artist, um, it feels like it's a radically different, maybe denser musical landscape for people, music consumers today? Well, so there's every now and then there's a record that breaks the rule. So the newest record I have out right now is the new Beyonce album. Now, what's really interesting is because of streaming, 
every single song on the Beyonce record, 13 songs all hit the chart, all were in the top 100. Wow. Because of streaming, everybody chose a song that they wanted to listen to. Wow. Because Beyonce is Beyonce. Um, the amount of people that were streaming the songs and listening to the songs made every single song chart. I don't think that's ever happened. At the same time, right? Whereas before, you'd have to break one song and then break another one and break another one. Right. I, I was shocked. Every single was <laughs> Every single song charts. I'm curious if, if you had an experience where you were working on a song and you thought, this is it. This is going to be a big one. This is a hit. We've got it in our hands. And it didn't work, you mean? Yeah. Or, I, or, or, yeah, or, or it worked. Or you were absolutely right. You just knew. Tell us one time you got it right and one time you got it wrong. Um, the time that I knew was I, I had at least five or six that I knew absolutely were right. I knew We Are Family was a smash. As a matter of fact, I knew We Are Family was such a smash. I didn't allow the record company to put that song out first. Believe it or not, let me take you back in history. I broke Sister Sledge with a song called He's the Greatest Dancer. He's the Greatest Dancer came out of the box as a platinum single. We dropped that before We Are Family because I knew He's the Greatest Dancer was a hit. So, And Niall, the year is what? Remind us of the year. Oh, my God. 1978. <laughs> and uh, then the Pittsburgh Pirates adopted We Are Family as their song and won the World Series. Um, <laughs> So uh, I knew those. But you knew you could hold that back and it would it was just a killer lying in wait. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the strategy was I was terrified that We Are Family was such a big hit that if we put that out first, people actually wouldn't listen to the rest of the album, which mm -hmm. to this day I still think is the single best album I've ever written. Oh, wow. The, the, the Sister Sledge album, you put the needle down and it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's the whole film. It, it, you, there's not one bad song on that album. I mean, wow. it's the best thing I've ever done. Um, and it's because I was trying to prove uh, to a record company what I could do. And it was also because of hearing uh, people tell me certain things that I just believed was the truth. I had no way of knowing that 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 what they were saying was true or not. I just chose to believe it as the truth. So when a person told me that an album was a film, I did the Sister Sledge album to prove that I could do a film and that every song was somehow related to an overall story. The overall story was this is a group of sisters and they were on the cutting edge of this new hip disco world of high fashion and supermodels and Halston, Gucci, Fiorucci. Believe it or not, first time ever in history that fashion designers were ever name checked in a pop song. Now <laughs> you can't buy, I'm serious, now try and buy a pop record without hearing Lamborghini, Rolls right, 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 yeah. and not right. hear something name checked. You pioneered product placement. You were the first. <laughs> You're the guy. But we didn't. We weren't trying to do product placement. What we were trying no. to do was paint a picture of these hip girls that were now representative of this new culture that was coming on. Right, right, right. 
And, if, and and any song, as David asked, that was like you thought was going to be huge and just was or not. Or that you wish would have second legs that someone would rediscover it and it ends up on Stranger Things. Didn't think much of it that then went crazy. Um, yeah, well, we did a song called called uh, Why for Carly Simon. And Carly Simon was really coming off of some big stuff. And... Um, we didn't understand the politics of radio and uh, we didn't know the, the, the whole stuff about payola and all that. We, we came from uh, a background where as black artists, we literally only had one lane that we could drive in. That, that was it. And if we didn't, if, if we didn't get to the front of that lane, um, that was it. Our our record was over. There was no other place. We didn't have like, you know, hey, so-and-so rock this and then and rock that. Hey, alternative this, alternative. There was no such thing as alternative Black radio. There was no, oh, there was folk Black radio. It was none of that. It was just Black radio, R&B. You had to be successful. And so the concept that we came up with was every song so traditionally artists believe that the chorus is the payoff the hook is the payoff mm. so what we did was we said hmm if people believe that the hook is the payoff that's the, that that's the dessert what if we lead the meal with the dessert what if we what if <laughs> we give you first. the payoff first so if you think about this, look at my canon of songs. Every one of my songs starts out like this. We are family. Or one, two, ah, freak out. Or let's dance. Or I'm coming out. Or you know, or right, right out of the gate, give them the give them dessert first. Every song I've ever they they all start with the chorus. It's you know. Do you know, oh, what? Wow, he's the greatest dancer. Everything is the chorus first. And that's funny. I, I, you know, now that I've become friends with people like Diane Warren, you know, I'm this chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I remember meeting Diane Warren, and her rap was, Yep, don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> Nile Rogers is not boring us at all. He has a special relationship with Bulova. He's going to tell us all about that when we come back. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the legacy collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. Tell us all about that when we come back. Nile, thanks. Uh, we are in the we're in awe. We're in uh, the company of an icon. It's Nile Rogers, and uh, you have a watch that Bulova named after you. Tell us about it. I I have a foundation. Uh, we are family foundation, and um, I also um, won a Grammy or two, <laughs> and somehow. Uh, Bulova was uh, sponsoring the Grammys 
And um, I, they presented me with this watch and it had my name on it and it was styled after a record. And it was, um, it was an incredible honor for me because what they didn't really know at the time was the first watch I ever received, you know, I'm American, right? You know, you're a little kid, you get a watch, you know, you get the Mickey Mouse watch, but then all of a sudden you become, you know, a kid, you, you, you're a teenager or you're a young uh, kid who believes that, you know, you're the smartest kid in the world and you, you want a real watch, you want a, a man's watch, you want a real watch. So um, Boulevard was affordable, and also um, in New York, every time I go to the airport, you drive past drive past the building and it would say Boulevard. And it just was part of the American landscape consciousness. <laughs> I, I mean, it was the it was it was America. It was the watch that was uh, affordable and reliable. And what was really cool, and honestly, they didn't know this at the time when I got, the, uh, when they awarded me the watch, um, I was at the moon landing in Central Park. I'm in New Yorker, right? So I'm at the moon landing in, at, in, in Central Park. And uh, it was the first time I ever saw anything that resembled a jumbotron. Now, when I go back and look at the pictures, I see that it was a fairly um, uh, archaic uh, what yeah. was taking place. Yeah. Wooden, you know, two by fours holding up the screen or whatever. But yeah. at the time, it looked like uh, what yeah. was taking place on yeah. the screen. They're landing on the moon. It's all these people in Central Park. Sure. We're sitting there watching this thing happen on this big screen. And it's not, we're not at a drive-in movie theater. We're at Central Park. Mm -hmm. um, that means that this thing was put up and then had to be taken down. It wasn't this um, uh, structure that lived in the park all the time. So the whole thing was sort of magical to me. Love that you brought up Central Park because uh, this past summer, I happened to be in Central Park with you and Madonna, um, which was one of the- uh, Hard to think of David Graver <laughs> dropping a name, but there it goes again. It was a sort of game-changing experience at Disco Oasis, which is something that you have your hand in. Would you tell us what Disco Oasis is and what it's doing and what it was doing in Central Park? Yeah. Um, well, it's still in Central Park. And uh, it's it's a concept that we came up with last year. We launched it in Los Angeles, in Palos Verdes, uh, at the Botanical Garden there. And um, uh, it really felt incredible. Like, I've been a roller skater all my life. And there was, there's something really magical about roller skating. There's something that feels is a certain type of freedom. You know, when I was younger, I used to skateboard as well as roller skate. But the thing is, is that the skateboard is not really attached to you, hmm. whereas the skates are, and they make you feel like a superhero in a wacky way. Like you can go faster than other people. You can do all this special stuff. and. Um, 
it it was just in, incredible. And what happened, the reason why Madonna was at Disco Aces was because she's the only artist in history that had had 50 number one records. And she was putting out a compilation album of her 50 number one records. Like no one has had 50 number one. The, <laughs> That's crazy. Not the Beatles, nobody. I mean, 50 number ones. And, um, and the interesting thing was, is that, um, so I'm actually, oh, I'm looking out my window right now at Disco Aces. I could see it. From where oh, wow. I am. And I could actually see Madonna's apartment, by the way. So Madonna was there. And my could you give us that address? <laughs> no, I can't. My apartment is only a few blocks from hers. And like, once again, just like the crossover between me and Boulevard, Madonna has 50 number ones but there's only one Madonna album that has one producer, Like a Virgin. I'm the only guy who is the only, I'm the only producer on Like a Virgin. And, and it was just incredible that we came together to celebrate her amazing accomplishment. And I just happened to find out, because I never even thought about it, um, that I was the only producer where I, where I'm the sole producer on a Madonna album. Mm -hmm. And it was just a phenomenal moment. And plus, you know, Madonna had uh, a tour where she had a big roller skating extravaganza going on. And so I knew that she skated somewhat and I wanted to try and get her to skate with me again. And she's like going, no, I've been skating a long time. I'm gonna bust. Her literal words were, I'm gonna bust my ass. So I talked to all of the employees and I said, okay, if Madonna falls, we're all gonna fall. <laughs> well, Graver said you got her out there and that uh, she was skating with everybody. Yeah, it all was of us. Like incredible. She was skating along with, uh, she had some people around her as she, as Madonna always does. But uh, she was really kind of, once she got going, she was kind of thrilled. She was wonderful. It was, I mean, it was, I mean, these are the words out of her mouth. She was like, no, you know what? It's like we haven't been apart for one moment. It was as if this was just the next day in our lives. Um, this, When we were making the Like a Virgin album, which is the biggest album of my career, um, we just saw each other every day and it was so loving and so wonderful. And I've said this a thousand times, Madonna is the closest uh, woman that I've ever been to without having a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, I looked at her as my artist for life. Little did I know that I would just do one record and she'd like kick me to the curb. But, <laughs> but no, we actually had an amazing time. And it wasn't because we had any problems or any or anything like that. Madonna is just the artist who is always seeking to propel herself to a new place. And after we did Like a Virgin, which was bigger than anything you could imagine. I mean, like I said, I've, I've sold hundreds of millions of records. I mean, like lots and lots and lots of records. To think that I had one album that would sell 
more than 28 million albums, just one, and this was relatively early in my career, um, where do I go from there? And mm-hmm. I guarantee you, Madonna was thinking, what the hell do I do now? <laughs> this is her second album and it's a 28 million seller. Oh my God, what do I do now? Um, so normally a person would think, well, I'm going to go with this same guy again, but she did the smart thing, which is don't try and replicate what you just did. Right. Try and surpass that. And maybe the go next long. person. Yeah, maybe the next person you work with would be a guy like me, who my job was when I met Madonna, I was like, okay, this is your life arc. This is where you are. It's my job to take you from here to there. Little did I know I would take her from here to there. And then, <laughs> like her next producer, her jo- his job is like, okay, even where to yeah. there. Right. And she yeah. did a great job. I mean, she did, you know, pop it on. Well, like I said, 50 number ones. Yeah. The uh, I'm curious. You mentioned having a relationship with Madonna and I'm curious about the relationship with stu- with in the studio with the artist that you're working with. Is it ever difficult? I mean, I would imagine you know, the producer comes in, they have a certain vision. The artist definitely has their vision if they've written the songs or if it's their music. Is that ever a clash? And like, do you have a certain way that you like to work with artists to kind of keep things on a, in a good place? Well, it's uh, it's shifted over the years. In the beginning, I only knew one way. And the way that I knew was the way that I was treated. So this is how I was treated. I get to the studio, there would be a chart that was the chart designed for whatever position I was playing. Usually there would be two to three guitar players on every song back in the day. And it was all about fast, you know, read the music, get it done fast, move to the next session. Um, so I never learned any music before I got to the studio. I learned the music, reading the music in the studio, and then you move on to the next record. So unfortunately, that's how I treated Sister Sledge. They never heard any of their songs until they met me that first day, which was incredible. They walked into the (laughs) studio and their whole album was written. They just had to sing what I had written on, you know, it was, it, we, it was done. They just walked in with oh, like, geez. what if we don't even like these songs? What do you mean, what if you don't like these songs? <laughs> this is your album. This is who you are. <laughs> this is what you're doing. Wow. And, and because it caused such a strange rift between us, I thought to myself, wow, I can't treat people like the way I've been treated. I have to treat people differently if I'm a, I'm the producer, um, especially if the record has their name on it. Like right. I can't, you know what I mean? The records that I was hired to do didn't have my name on it. I was servicing someone else. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm doing a record that has Madonna's name on it, I have to service her. I can't tell Madonna what to do. Right. I could suggest, I could try and steer her in the right direction. But that meant that I had to understand what she wanted to do. So now my job changed considerably from the way that I treated Sister Sledge. So after Sister Sledge, um, believe it or not, the I got Diana Ross, who was at that time, um, 
And, and this is, I think, a pretty accurate statement. You know, everybody talks about, you know, yeah, I did David Bowie, I did Mick Jagger, I did Duran Duran. Well, let me tell you something. When it comes to stars that can suck the oxygen out of the room, mm. there's a handful of people who do that. Mm. Madonna does that. Right. Yeah, Bowie may have done that, but let me tell you, the day I met David Bowie, he was sitting all by himself in one of the most popular clubs in New York, and nobody was talking to him. <laughs> I, I remember going to a club and seeing Paul McCartney sitting there having tea all by himself. And because I was with Duran Duran, every girl in the place was going bananas. Not one person. <laughs> talking to and he's the cute one. <laughs> McCartney, right. So, you know, Duran Duran had now taken the place of the Beatles or whatever. It was like young girls were freaking out over John Taylor. Paul McCartney was sitting there by himself having tea. So um, my next record was with Diana Ross. And let me tell you, those days in 1979, if you walked into a room and you had Diana Ross and Barbara Streisand I don't care what musical artist you had. Michael, Mike, you could have Michael Jackson. Diana Ross and Barbara Streisand sucked the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> Michael Jackson was cool, but believe me, I was in Studio 54 many times with Michael Jackson, but Liza Minnelli would be there too, and Halston and these famous designers, and Michael was cool. He was part of the crowd, but... He wasn't Diana Ross. <laughs> right, right. The fact that I wound up doing Diana Ross as my first star's record, it's the first time I ever worked with a star, because mm. basically we invented Sister Sledge, even though they, they existed before us. They didn't have, you know, I mean, you know, we are family is what made Sister Sledge. Um, Diana Ross was already Diana Ross. Now what do I do? with an artist like Diana Ross. I had to do something that was completely different. Um, so what I decided to do was, because I didn't know who Sister Sledge was, but I invented them, well, I knew who Diana Ross was, mm. but guess what? She was a superstar and never really had anything to do with her music other than the fact that she performed it. Barry mm -hmm. Gordy and Motown told her what to do. Right. I decided I was going to interview Diana Ross and I was going to write a documentary. Remember, to me, an album is a film. So I decided I was going to make a documentary about the life of Diana Ross. And I sat down and wrote an album called Diana. <laughs> <laughs> and this song was about, and she opened up to me and told me everything about her life. I uh -huh. knew everything. Wow. Wow. I feel like we, you have told us almost everything uh, about yours and we've only scratched the surface. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. You have been a, a tremendous, iconic uh interview and we are just thrilled that Nile Rogers joined us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And uh, that's a wrap. We, we, uh, you're welcome back here anytime. Thank you. You guys have been great. We Thank don't sing, so but now. we need you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Accutron show. 
To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.